Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, today's episode is brought to you by, well, you. (laughs) Yes, we mentioned it. I can't remember a couple episodes ago about vintage shopping and we received so many messages from you saying, can you please do an episode about how to shop for vintage? So this is obviously something you all are very interested in and we have a little bit of experience in April. Absolutely. I mean, I think I now at this point, I probably wear vintage 90% of the time, um, if maybe 85% of the time, but but the, by far and away, the, the larger preponderance of the time I'm wearing vintage. Um, but Cass, I thought that it could be kind of interesting for us to just start this discussion um, with sharing some of our earliest memories of shopping vintage or how we developed our relationship with vintage. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Why don't you dive in? Okay. Well, I have to say, um, I have to give a lot of credit about this to my mom because she was a huge garage sailor and yes, my mom drag me to <laughs> all is. of these <laughs> garage sales and estate sales and antique malls as um, when I was a kid. And for her, it was really, she was looking for furniture usually most of the time because she actually would buy antique f- furniture, refinish it. And it either it stayed in our home or she would flip it. She would sell it. Um, but while I was at all of these you know, various sales, I kind of became obsessed with all the vintage hats. So that was kind of like my entry point. Um, And I was fascinated in the stories that were behind the clothes. And I would kind of obsess a lot about how this hat or this particular garment had had this whole life before I even encountered it. And I always wanted to know more about it. So that was kind of my entry point. It makes perfect sense now thinking back on that, when I was doing that, when I was like 10, 11, 12, that this is where I ended up professionally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I don't have as many memories, perhaps shopping for vintage as a child, Mm -hmm. but what I do remember very distinctively, and I've mentioned this probably multiple times on the show, is my grandmother, my mom's mom, Grammy, had this beautiful vintage jewelry collection. And it was stored in these 1950s, like vintage box with like silk linings. And when I would come to visit her or hang out at her house over the summer, or whenever we went over there, she would pull it out and sometimes she would let me play with it. And Mm. when she passed away, I inherited that. So those are some of like my most prized possessions and something that I really grew up appreciating and valuing. Um, For instance, we did that episode with where we dated my locket with Mm Maureen Taylor and that locket came from my Grammy. So that, Mm. you know, late 19th, early 20th century Grammy early 20th century jewelry came from my grandmother. And then there's also this beautiful like 1920s diamond ring that I inherited and just so many wonderful things and cameos. 
um, and, you know, just all of this wonderful costume jewelry. And I think it really was an entry point into just appreciating one of a kind things that you can't Mm -hmm. buy in stores, right? And there's so much intrinsic value in vintage because it is Maybe not the time it was produced. It might not have been. It might not have been a one-off. But today, because of you know the time and over time, you know you just don't have those replicas anymore. So you're really mm-hmm. looking for like one of the kind special pieces, and that's what I love so much. Not just about vintage shopping, but thrifting too. Yeah. Well, and also too, um, there's a sentimental value to that jewelry for you because those are family heirlooms. Yes, um, absolutely. So you kind of like hit the pavement wearing your vintage right away. I did not do that, however. Um, By the time I was in high school, I had kind of amassed, you know, a significant collection of like interesting vintage hats. I didn't really wear them. I just kind of like, they were hung up on my walls in my room as decoration by and large. Um, But while I was in high school, my boyfriend at the time, his mom still had all of her hippie clothes from the 1960s. Um, And so I would have fun playing um, in her closet and she would let me wear them sometimes when we had like special events, like for school or like a costume party or something. And I was thinking back on it. I was like, okay, so I'm going to date myself here. I was in high school in the nineties. Um, so I was like, okay, what, what is the equivalent of that today? So uh, 1969 would have been 25 years before when I was in high school. And now if we use that same 25 years ago, it would be 1998. Oh, and yeah. that makes perfect <laughs> sense because like the 90s and the early aughts are like the hottest trend right now. So I just oh, thought yeah. it was really interesting how like my temporal interest in high school was the 60s and it's kind of the same for high school students today. So yeah. yeah. And you actually just reminded me too, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have similar stories about playing dress up with your mother's vintage, you know, quote unquote, vintage clothing. And actually my mother let me play with this insanely beautiful 1930s dress. I never realized it was 1930s, of course, until I grew up to be an, a fashion historian and it's still like shredded in my closet. And I'm looking at it going, mom, this dress is from the 1930s. Her brother actually gave it to her in the 60s, which again, in the 60s, mm. it would have only been 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time I had my hands on it in the 80s and 90s and was playing around in it, it was 60 years old. Yeah, well, now- I guess that kind of like brings up a point that we should talk about, right? What is the difference between antique versus vintage versus secondhand? Right. Yes. And we have actually done a mini sewed on this in the past because this question has come up quite a few times. And as you said, April, like, what is it? Is it 50 years, 25 years, 15 years? 1973 would have been 50 years ago. Right. And you just mentioned the 90s was now, oh, God. 30 years ago, 25 years ago in certain cases. Yeah. Yeah. 1993 would have been 30 years ago. And it's crazy being myself as someone who was also in high school in the 90s um, on the later end, seeing the 90s come back as like a vintage inspired look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's completely <laughs> wild. And, and, and so I guess in my mind, I want to bring up this like demarcator, right? So generally speaking, and, and we did do an episode of, on this in the past, we were like, okay, if something is antique um, in terms of furniture, people usually say that's after the 50 year mark, 
right? If it's older than 50 years or older than it's an antique vintage kind of is like around 25 years. And then maybe secondhand is, is more recent than that. But I still have a hard time thinking of clothes from the 1970s as antiques. So I don't, <laughs> I can't let go of that feeling. Like, I don't know. I just feel like it's more vintage. So, yeah. So as you can see, dress listeners, that the answer to that question is somewhat up in the air, but I would say 20 plus years is a good kind of, it's no longer a current contemporary in terms of, I mean, I guess in terms of the nineties, that's not actually true. Um, but yeah, I think 20 years is a good marker. I don't know how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also too, this difference between what is a vintage store and what is a secondhand store, right? right. Um, I think that I see a lot of both. Obviously, I live in New York City. Um, and my feeling is that the secondhand stores tend to be the ones that have the more recent things. They do have older things sometimes, but the, a lot of those most recent things come to them by way of this system that maybe not a lot of people know about, about how they acquire used clothing. If that store isn't one that where you can go in and sell your clothing, um, how they're getting the clothing that is in the store is usually by purchasing used clothing by weight. Um, And there is a whole system across not only the United States, but all over the world that does this. And usually those stores are the ones where you can expect to pay lower prices. Um, And then on the flip side of that, if you're wandering into a store that's more of a vintage specific store that has been highly curated, expect to pay more money um, because they have done more work um, in in sussing out and identifying those garments. So that's a little bit of the difference between like, what is a vintage store versus what is a secondhand store? Yeah. And secondhand stores, you can obviously, like if you're thinking of like savers or goodwill, those are places you can donate your own clothing to today. And this is the Mm -hmm. place where I come in and say, most of the clothes that you donate to your thrift stores actually get shipped to other countries. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, you know, keeping things in circulation, stop shopping secondhand, but also being mindful of where your donated clothing goes. We're huge proponents of clothing swaps and uh, keeping clothes in uh, circulation that way. But that is another episode that we have actually probably done. Um, But today we are going to answer your question, which is how do I find vintage? For someone like me who shops at Savers, for instance, vintage is kind of, it's not a vintage specific clothing store, but there is vintage treasures in your secondhand clothing stores, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you know what it is? And so today we're really going to work to educate you all on materials, techniques, silhouettes, et cetera. So you know how to, what you're looking for and how to identify it when you find it. So obviously one of the very first things is know your silhouettes, right? If you look at something and you're like, that doesn't look like it's contemporary today. That's kind of a first indicator, right? Do you know what silhouettes from the 1970s looked like or the 60s or the 19th century, right? The more fashion history you know, the more you'll be able to identify something instantly as not being contemporary to today. Where does that get tricky? Well, the 90s are back today, right? So you Mm -hmm. can see a very, a ton of 90s sheen, for instance, at the thrift store, and it's not obviously from the 90s. But so what are the other ways, once you know how to identify the silhouette, what are the other tips and tricks, April, that people can use to identify it as being truly vintage? Well, before we move on to that, I just want to throw in a resource perhaps for you all to consult. Um, and FIT and the History of Art Department, and which also has a minor in fashion studies for the undergrad students, they've been working on this 
fascinating project for the last several years now where they have developed a fashion history timeline. So it is incredibly detailed. Um, there's lots of fun articles. There's a lot of art history in there as well. So that might be if you're like, oh, is this 40s? Is this 50s? Is this 1930s? Um, head over to the FIT timeline. Check that out. It's an invaluable resource, the FIT fashion history timeline. Okay. So for me, the number one thing, and I've said this before on the show, probably like three or four times, but the number one thing that I do when I walk straight into a vintage store is I tend to move fairly quickly. And to do that, I just go scan very quickly um, the fabrics that yes, are me too. on the racks. And if I see something that looks like a high end or quality fabric, that's when it catches my attention and I'll stop and I'll pull it off the rack. And then we dig into it a little bit further from there. <laughs> yeah. I do the exact same thing. I scan for fabric and pattern because patterns will jump out to you too. Um, if something's maybe a little bit more worn or something's hand beaded or sequined, right? You pull that mm -hmm. out, but same thing. I kind of run with my hand along it, pull fabrics out, keep moving until I find something that really speaks mm -hmm. to me. But April, so how do people know the difference between say natural and synthetic fibers? And the other thing is too, is that synthetic fibers are not contemporary to today, right? Synthetic fibers have actually been around since at least the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, just generally speaking, you have two options, right? We have natural fibers that um, come from nature, like cotton, linen, wool, silk, um, and then you have synthetics. So those are man-made fibers, you know, and sometimes, sometimes those man-made fibers will ultimately have a a natural fiber origin. For instance, some man-made fibers are made of liquefied cotton, but they are still considered man-made. Semi-synthetic. Semi-synthetic, semi right. <laughs> um, but just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to issue a broad statement here and just say that natural fibers are almost always going to be your best bet, right? They're almost always going to be a little bit higher quality. Um, but as you mentioned, synthetics are nothing new. Uh, technically, their invention dates back to the 1870s. But the widespread adoption within the fashion industry didn't really happen until the 1920s. And then, of course, they really exploded onto the scene during World War II in the 1940s at that time. As we've talked about many times, wool was rationed, silk was rationed for the war effort. So that's really when we start to see um, synthetic fibers explode into the fashion market. Yeah. And when you're talking about the 1870s, 1880s, you're talking about things like rayon, right? Rayon dates all the way back to the 19th century and was actually created as a substitute for silk, right? It was called artificial silk at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of those semi-synthetics. So it's made from wood pulp, which is really fascinating, right? But because of how processed it is, uh, it's semi-synthetic and it's different than say something like polyester that's petroleum based. And mm -hmm. then of course, World War II, nylon, right? Nylon stockings, um, 1939, I believe. And mm -hmm. so they've really been around for a while, but not necessarily as common, not nearly as common in clothing as we see today. And April, you're saying higher quality with the natural fibers too, right? I think a lot of lessons you can learn from what we're talking about today is just how to buy higher quality clothing too, because yes. those things exist at the thrift store, the secondhand shop that you're looking for. So I think all of these kind of tips can help you to look for higher quality clothing. But in general, clothing was just higher quality in the past. As our listeners uh -huh. know, we live in a fast fashion era where 
you know, people are creating billions of garments a year. So clothing, you know, the quality of clothing just has gone down dramatically. So inherently vintage clothing from the past is going to be higher quality. So mm-hmm. I want to relate a story to you all though, because this just has stuck with me for so many years. I was shopping at Buffalo Exchange, which again has a nice blend of vintage. And the vintage at my Buffalo Exchange is often always priced so low because it's not something that's very prized here, I'm assuming. So I can always get like under $10 vintage pieces at Buffalo. What? <laughs> but I was that's there. Wild. With I think my friend Brenda and we were shopping and I pulled this 1940s blazer out of Iraq and I was showing it to her. And as you know, April 1940s, uh, some of these these blazers have a lot of construction, like a lot of high high details because they couldn't use a lot of fabric. So they that those details went into the like construction of the coat. And so they have a lot of really fun details. It was cold rayon. And this woman next to me walks up to me and she touches it and she goes, that's not 1940s, that's 1980s. I know polyester when I see it. And so that just brings up a really interesting point, right? Is that mm-hmm. is that knowing your materials. So she, in her head, there was no synthetic materials prior to the 1980s. And in her head, that was a 1980s coat. But as we know, in the 1980s, 1940s was popular, right? You had similar silhouettes with like the shoulder pads and stuff. So again, mm-hmm. it can, it, it's not necessarily, fabric is not necessarily the main indicator as well. So it's kind of layering all of these tips and tricks onto one another to really identify vintage clothing. Um, but one of the easiest ways too, if you really, really want to know fiber content and there's no label is to do a burn test. Yes. We love a good burn <laughs> test. <laughs> And so natural fibers generally lighten quicker um, and they're, and cotton and linen, for instance, will leave a soft gray ash if you burn some of the fibers. So you can take fibers, say, of like from the inseam is an easy way to kind of snip some mm-hmm. fibers off. And then if it's silk and wool, they will give the smell of burning hair. Mm-hmm. And then synthetics are more likely they're just going to burn. They leave a hard bead. Usually when the flame goes out, they melt more than burn actually is what I was trying to say. And sometimes they're harder to light. And then when they are lit, they flare up and there's like kind of an acrid or sweet smell that may indicate a synthetic fiber. So if you really want to get uh, scientific and have some fun, that is one of the ways that you can do, uh, can learn about different fibers and materials. Yes. Yes. And, and when you do this, please remember, please do this over your kitchen sink. Um, <laughs> Dress podcast does not uh, uh, endorse burning anyone's house down, just saying. (laughs) Or burning your house down. So please, yes, please light responsibly. Um, One other little trick has to do with spandex. So if you can definitely tell that something has a little elastic or spandex in it, or if the label indicates spandex, it probably, probably means that it's from the 1960s or, or more recent than the 1960s. We first start to see spandex really incorporated into the fashion industry and clothing in the 1960s and when it was very first used in lingerie and swimwear, of course, that makes perfect sense. So if you have spandex, if you have a lot of give, it's probably not going to be from the 40s or from the 50s. So yeah, and keeping on this theme of materials and how clothing is made, zippers are kind of one of the like indicators of vintage clothing. Absolutely. I say that because if it has a metal zipper in it, 
it's highly likely that that's vintage um, and not just vintage, but prior to like the 1960s, really. So plastic zippers really did not become common until the 1960s. And obviously that's really what we use predominantly today. I mean, there are exceptions depending on the quality of clothing and the manufacturer, et cetera, but predominantly plastic. If it's prior to the 1960s, though, you're going to see a metal zipper. It's also, they also might be on the side versus the center back. That changed in the 1960s as well. And then obviously, if it's like a closure that's like hand-sewn buttonholes, right? If it's uh-huh. buttons or it's just a bunch of hook and eyes, those kind of are indicators that this is either a hand-produced, you know, homemade garment or it's prior to the 1960s. And obviously the 1960s and beyond is when we really start to see manufacturing keep revving up and revving up and revving up. So Uh again, lower quality materials start getting introduced, synthetic fibers become more common all past the 1960s. And I just want to say, I think that the history of the invention of the zipper and evolution of the zipper is a fascinating topic. And I'm going to bookmark that for a mini sode for us for the future. So yes, stay please tuned do. for that. <laughs> yes, it's so, so fascinating. I mean, even the history of like the hanger, which was patented, like all of these things we just take for granted today and just assume that they've always been and people have always used hangers and always used zippers. No, these are like the brainchild of people, sometimes multiple people. And years and years of work and development went into these creations that we now, you know, take for granted today. So please do a zipper mini. So yeah, that sounds I fascinating. The invention of the zipper actually has a has a tie-in to the sewing machine too. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just gonna tease it and let it be, but that'll be out in the next few months, probably. Fun, fun, fun. Um, okay, Cass. So I have a question because as as we all know, I don't sew. I mean, I can hand sew, I can do embroidery stitches and stuff like that, but I'm I don't make clothing in terms of construction. You do, however, um, that is your background. So do you have any little like inside the garment? tricks or tips or telltale signs of how to identify vintage from the inside? Absolutely. And again, this is one of those things that's like, this is a good tip for looking for vintage, but also just higher quality clothing at your thrift store, right? So clothing that maybe a home sewer made, or that is just been made with a lot more care and attention to detail. And that of course goes into hand craftsmanship. In April, you know, I sell vintage occasionally Mm -hmm. um, because I do my self do not wear it. I wear a lot more secondhand clothing um, than I do actual vintage, but I often find vintage at Savers, which I send to you. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that I sent to you, at least I think it was six months or so ago, was this fantastic silk hand-beaded jacket. Yes. No label, no label. I just looking at the silhouette, probably 1980s, but it was entirely covered in sequins or is it beads? It's a combination of both, actually. And it's really beautiful. It's it's like a white ground. And then it has like buttercup yellow and kind of like jade beads and uh, sequins that are in like a triangle, almost like a Harlequin motif. Um, and I have to say, I know exactly where it is hanging right now in my closet, but I haven't had a chance to wear it yet because I haven't found the right complete ensemble for it all to go together. So I'm going to be very, very happy when I do figure that little other piece out. (laughs) But I found that at my local thrift store because I was scanning and looking for different types of patterning and materials and hand Mm -hmm. beading is 
an art form in and of itself. And so, so common. I would say that's one of the most common things I actually find that's vintage at thrift stores are these like beautifully hand beaded silk round garments. So look for things like that um, because that is obviously an indicator of not only craftsmanship, but also vintage 1980s is very typical, but can be earlier, certainly earlier. And then another easy indicator is looking at the actual seam. So Mm. say prior to like the 1950s, if you have a garment that has a raw or unfinished seam, so it's not surged, it's not pinked. And pinking is the kind of that, or pinking shears are scissors that create this kind of zigzag, like almost like teeth. Uh, And that sometimes is how garments are finished. Prior to the 1950s though, if it could be a French seam is common. So where they hide the edge of the garment altogether within a seam, but also it could just be raw outright. And that's Mm -hmm. very common in garments prior to the 1950s. So of course that could be an indicator that someone made it at home and didn't finish it. But again, looking at it in terms of material, silhouette, combine all those three. And if, and you have an unfinished raw edge inside the garment, you are probably looking at vintage. So that's a really, really good indicator. And then if it is a pinked pinking shears, that's probably more 1950s. And then if it's surged, surging machines became a lot more popular and widely available in the 60s. And surging is what we are all familiar with today. It's the most common way garments are finished. So again, combine all of these elements and see will really help you in dating that garment. Yeah. And surging is just for, if anybody doesn't know, it's kind of like this uh, specific machine that does like an overcast stitch yes. all, all along the, the cut edge of the fabric. Um, and, and that is just keeping the fabric um, in place. And so it doesn't fray. So that's yes, what surging exactly. is. As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
you will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Okay. We have to talk about sizes. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, I don't think it's going to come as a huge surprise to most of our listeners that sizing standards have changed over time. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this concept of vanity sizing, but what is vanity sizing? Okay. Essentially, this is... Let's say you go on and you go in to buy some jeans, right? And you try on um, a pair of jeans from brand A and you wear a size eight. You try on a pair of jeans from brand B and you wear a size six. Which pair are you going to buy? So they are betting on the fact that your ego is going to be stroked a little bit by the fact that it's a smaller size. And so this like happening over decades and decades and decades of brands kind of like making the number of the size smaller, while the actual measurements of the garments are larger, has completely thrown off our entire sizing system. And we're talking specifically about vanity sizing right now. Uh, This also applies to paper patterns. Um, But just as a form of illustration, we all know the very famous supermodel Twiggy, who was very famous in the 1960s. In 1967, Twiggy, who's tiny, 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 that's why she was called Twiggy. She was a size eight uh, in the U.S., right? Um, Today, that she would be what we call a size double zero. Okay. So fast forward, like, 20 years in the 1980s, a U.S. size eight was what we would call a two today. So you can see how the whole system has gotten super wonky. And here's the one big takeaway that I want to say, throw size completely out the window when you're venture shopping. Yes, Um, It is a mess to try to make exact size conversions from one time period to another time period. Forget about the fact that sometimes what you're seeing is junior sizing, which was a whole different format in and of itself. And so if you're shopping online, just go by the measurements. If those are your measurements, do that. Um, If you are shopping in person, try it on. I don't even look at sizes when I vintage shop at all anymore, I kind of just more pick it up and I see it and I look at it. I'm like, does this look like it'll fit? And then I try it on. So that's a little note about size. And we have um, also done um, a really good episode in the past with Lauren Downing Peters, where we do talk a little bit more about um, how standardized sizing was developed. So you can tune into that past episode if you want to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah. And Lauren actually just published her book finally of with all of her research on the history of plus size fat fashions. I just sent her a little message on Instagram yesterday, a couple of days ago to say congratulations. So yeah. So if you want to check out Lauren's book, you can check out fashion before plus size. Okay, April, that actually sizing leads me to think of labels and labels Mm -hmm. is actually a huge way to identify a vintage garment. And you know, 
is it frayed? Does it look old? Does it look brand new? You know, that's kind of like an easy indicator. Is it kind of faded? How is it? How, what does the wording look like on it? Is it made in the USA, for instance? Mm-hmm. Um, is it made in Hong Kong? Right. These are all actually indicators that this is a vintage garment because 80s moving onwards, you're going to see a lot more made in China, made in Vietnam, made in um, all of these places that are not in the U.S. Because the U.S. and of course, we're speaking specifically as to United States based fashion historians who have experienced shopping with United States vintage. The label is an easy way to see when that garment was made. One mm-hmm. of the easiest indicators, if it has an ILGWU label in it, uh-huh. which is the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. That will usually be sewn closer to like the bottom or hem of the garment. And it's a little tiny label and it will have that ILGWU. That union was the first union in the U.S. founded in 1900. And it was comprised primarily of women um, because women dominated the garment making industry. It was founded in 1900. It wasn't dissolved until 1995. But actually, I think it's SammyDVintage.com breaks down those labels for you by year. Mm -hmm. So if you have a specific label, they will tell you what year that was. So that's an easy way to kind of find the era which your garment was made. Um, and prior actually to the 1950s, it was less common in American fashion that the designer would be named, right? So you're going to have mm-hmm. brands, brand labels in, in your garment. And April, how can people identify those brand labels? What's kind of an easy way for them to figure that out? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I want to tell everybody about vintageFashionGuild.org, the website. I've been a big fan of theirs since back when I was in grad school, because we were introduced to their label resource bank online when we were in grad school, when we would obviously um, be identifying or we were learning how to research and identify garments. And it is such an invaluable resource. I cannot stress that enough. Basically what they've done is they've um, compiled this, this massive database of uh, fashion brands or fashion designers. Um, and a lot of them have multiple shots of that brand's labels over time. And so, you know, let's say it's something like a little bit older of a brand, like a Hattie Carnegie label, right? A very well-known American, early American design house. Um, you know, is it from the 1920s? Is it from the 1940s? Is it from the 1960s? So that resource is is really, really great in terms of just the labels. But also, I hadn't been on um, there in, you know, a little bit. And I hopped on when we were preparing for this episode. And I have to say they have also developed now so much more interesting content in addition to the label resources. They have information on there about how to identify fibers, how to care for your vintage garments. Oh. Um, um, they, I, you know, we're not advocates of fur on the show, but if you did have a fur that you wanted to resource, they have a whole tab about how to identify furs and leathers. So there's lots and lots of good stuff there. So check out vintagefashionguild.org or become a member. You can join them as a member as well. Yes. Invaluable resource. So dress mm-hmm. listeners, just a little recap about what we've kind of talked about today. So these tips and tricks, obviously, if you can identify the silhouette of an era, that's a good start starting place, but then you're going to want to look at the fabric 
uh, the material that it's made out of, how it's constructed. Does it have a side zipper, a back zipper? Is that zipper metal? Does it have hook and eye closures or button closures? How is it hand finished, right? Is it hand finished? How, what does the inseam look like? And um, how, what does the label look like, right? And April just named an invaluable resource. So put all of those things together and you are well on your way to identifying and finding some fabulous vintage. So April, where do people shop, right? We've kind of referenced it a little bit here, but obviously April and I are both huge advocates of using your local resources, right? So walk Uh into your community and there's so many just in Albuquerque alone, there's like, I don't even know, dozens and dozens of thrift stores, secondhand shops. A lot of them are charity-based. They're donating to animal shelters, et cetera. Those places have clothing anywhere that sells clothing secondhand or used clothing, you're likely to find vintage. And something that I love, love, love doing is going to estate sales. So if Same. you have estate sales <laughs> in your neighborhood, I people find really, really amazing vintage. And I'm talking like 1920s, like 19th century vintage, because this is stuff people have held on to for many, many years, right? In their closets uh-huh. or their their treasure chests. So those are prime places and antique malls too, April, uh-huh. you mentioned. And and also, I just want to remind everyone, shopping local, instead of doing it online, when you're shopping vintage, you are creating a lighter carbon footprint, right? We're not shipping things all over the world. So um, I always say start local. Um, And also, if you're not sure where your local vintage shops are, check out in your community to see if someone has compiled a, a map of all the vintage shopping that's that's in your area. Obviously, I live in New York, so um, we have a ton of, uh, of vintage shops here. Um, but there are other cities too that have already kind of like all of the shop owners kind of band together to create these maps. And they're all, a lot of times they're available free at the front desk, or sometimes they're online and they are um, all doing this in a joint effort to kind of like promote vintage shopping in your area. So if you are coming to New York City or if you are already here, you can head over to nycvintagemap.com. On that site, they have 321 vintage shops in New York City wow. in my neighborhood, which is super, super helpful because obviously you're not going to be able to hit all of those. So if you just want to focus on one certain neighborhood, uh, you can do that. So that's just my little tip and trick. I always, um, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, also will go to the Manhattan Vintage Show. Um, It is one of those kind of uh, larger shows with multiple vendors. A lot of these vendors are traveling to your location. They're not necessarily New York based. Those shows are so wonderful. They have them in many other cities as well. Um, And so you're going to see a wide spectrum of dealers and time periods represented. Some of them have specialties that they focus on. So that's a really good way to see a lot of different things at once. And also online, I'm a big fan of a current affair, which they hold multiple times a year. And when they do that online uh, or on Instagram, they give the certain shops a certain amount of time where they can be online on Instagram and like talking about their shop and showing certain pieces. so check out a current affair too. Those are those are kind of two of my bigger multi-vendor events that I that I always pay attention to. Yes. What and else? of course there's so many vintage dealers on Instagram, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many that I'm 
drawing a blank about who I would actually promote right now. So apologies, but I follow so (laughs) many vintage, so many vintage sellers on Instagram. Some of them have actual brick and mortar stores. Some of them are just purely online and will just drop ship it to you if you DM them that you want it. So that's a great resource. Uh, And then also dress listeners, if you happen to be in Bellows Falls, Vermont on July 29th and 30th, you can go to the discovery auction of Augusta auction, which you've heard us talk about so many times on the show. And as they remind you, do you love vintage? Don't miss the sale. Two-day liquidation of clothing textiles from more than two dozen museums, historical societies, and private consigners. Under the tent, rain or shine, 8,000 plus vintage pieces. So check it out if you're going there. But I mean, there's such a huge world out there. And again, now you have the tools to go into your local thrift store and start what is the hunt, right? It's a hunt. It's not something that's (laughs) easy, but that is what is so much fun about it is you can spend a couple hours there. And if you just find that one piece, right, it's worth it. Yes, 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 yes. Well, do we want to talk about some of our favorite personal vintage finds? I can start if you want. Go ahead. Okay. Well, anyone who knows me well knows that a very large proportion of my wardrobe is made up of vintage Hawaiian maxi dresses. I don't even know how many I have at this point. Dozens probably. So that's always like super exciting when I find a really good one um, at a new shop. Also too, and something that I don't wear every day, but I love finding late 1960s and early 1970s hostess gowns. So they're kind of like not quite lounge pajamas, but they're like a little bit glamorous, but they're not really supposed to wear them out of the house. Um, a lot of caftan like silhouettes, which is another thing that I, that I gravitate towards. Um, and then of course, you know, we have our, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not tied to having to have a designer label that doesn't right. really matter to me very, very much. But of course, I do find rather spectacular things occasionally. I have a a silk poochie shift dress from the 1960s wow. that is spectacular. I don't wear it because the silk is starting to shatter just underneath the armpit. But what makes this poochie dress so unusual is it has a hood on it. And it's not just like a little hood. If you wore it up, it's like almost like three feet up in the air and it like drapes down over you. Um, It's very unusual. I've never seen another poochie garment that has that crazy hood on it before. I do have one of the Courage little white dresses um, from the late 1960s as well with the little buttons on it and the pockets in the front. And very rarely do I wear it because it's a tad too small on the shoulders, but I have a black Paco Rabanne wool coat that kind of has like almost like a riding cape silhouette to it um, that's all piped in um, leopard velvet all over the coat too. And that's another one of my favorite ones. What about you? Wow, wow, wow. Um, I can't off the top of my head think of any like spectacular finds except for one. The most memorable vintage find I've ever had was I was at Savers with my sister And let me just preface this story with telling you that my dad was a jeweler for many, many years. 
and he designed these rings and they're like one of my prized possessions. And they're not like necessarily something spectacular to look at, but they have so much sentimental value and I mm. love them. There are two, it's a pair of rings and they're silver and they're like twisted wire. So you like twist the wire together and one is kind of like a, a larger um, twisting and then the other is like a smaller twisting and I pair them together and I wear them all the time. And so my sister and I were shopping at Savers and I was looking in the jewelry case and we found the exact same set from the eighties, <laughs> exact same set that my dad made in the eighties in the jewelry design in like five years ago at Savers. And so now my sister has a matching set of those rings. Isn't that amazing? Oh, that's, that's an amazing story. I love that story so much. Yeah. So basically those rings found us as your mm -hmm. vintage will find you dress listeners. It's out there just waiting for you. And we're so excited to hear from you after hopefully listening to this episode and seeing what you find in your local thrift shop. So please share with us. Yes, I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the deep, deep history of the vintage clothing in your closet next time you get dressed. And dress listeners, we know we've said it before, but we want to remind you again that you can listen to the show now without ads. And it's just for $3 a month. We now offer a subscription service. There's a link in the show notes of our episode. If you want to support us, that's just buying us a cup of coffee, but you know, we're out here on our own now. So it all helps. And we wanted to remind you about that as well as our new website, dressedhistory.com, which comes with a new email. Hello at dressedhistory.com. You can send us an email. Let us know all about the fabulous vintage that you found out there in the universe. Yes. And as always, you can also find us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. More dress coming your way on Tuesday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.